tonight we're going to look at some of the particulars. There are some passages in Ezekiel which I believe are probably the most difficult prophecies found in the Old Testament to be able to unpack completely. And so we're going to look at a little bit of hermeneutics. We're going to look at a little bit of why we hold to a literal interpretation of the scriptures and what happens if you don't. And we're going to try to open up some of those uh, visions that were given and some of those passages to give us a lot better understanding of those. Because they really do tie into Daniel. And of course, they really closely tie into Revelation and what goes on there. So having said that, let me just pray and then we'll begin. Lord God, we're thankful for this day that you've given us again a chance to come together tonight. And some of us are tired. We've been working all day and, and uh, we're tired. Our kids are in Awana and we have some relief from their needs, but uh, it's hard for us to uh, come back in and refocus on something. I pray that you'd help us to be able to do that. I pray you'd make your word fascinating. You'd open our hearts and minds to it that we might understand the message you gave to this man of God and be able to apply that as much as possible to our own lives and our own situation. So give us grace as we open your word. Give us wisdom to hear, to understand, and to be able to, to uh, gain a better perspective of all that you have here. We want to commit this evening to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There are some outlines on the back that are the same one from last week. So if you got yours from last week, um, you can see where I'm at as we go through this whole thing. The message of Isaiah uh, centers on the salvation of the Lord. You get a great vision in Isaiah of, of the Messiah and who he is and some of those, those properties. The visions of Daniel, the book of Daniel, centers around the kingdom of the Lord but the central theme of Ezekiel is the glory of the Lord. Within the parables, the visions, the analogies that are given comes forth a vision of God who's divinely sovereign and who is the administrator of the government of the earth. And that's really important for us to remember because a lot of times we look at this earth and all that's going on and it looks like it's either chaos or that uh, one of the loonies is in charge of the asylum, you know, and uh, it's not that way at all. God is working this out according to his plan, and he's got his hand not only upon that little piece of real estate we call Israel, not only upon what happens to that nation, but upon every nation and upon all of the governments of the world. He's not only got his hand upon them, but he's directing them according to his purpose. The large divisions of the book of Ezekiel um, deal with a coming judgment on Israel. Remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's 880 miles away from Jerusalem. And yet God gives him visions that are verified. He knows six months before Nebuchadnezzar does that, Babylon, that Jerusalem has fallen. He prophesies that tells how exactly what has taken place. And six months later, a messenger comes and tells him that that has happened and confirms all that he has, he has predicted. Um, Ezekiel then moves from there to a message of hope. All of the first 24 chapters are a dire prophecy. These things are going to happen. Part of that is warning. Part of it is warning that if you do not heed what I am telling you, 
this nation is going to fall and you will be destroyed. If you heed that, there's something else that could happen. After that has happened, judgment has fallen, the nation is destroyed, the temple is no more. In fact, the city is, is completely demolished. Then he begins a rebuilding vision of God having a promise that is eternal to Israel. He will come back. It will be fulfilled. And we get into all this mishmash about a millennial kingdom and uh, Jesus ruling upon the throne and things like that, some of which is admittedly difficult to understand and keep in a timeline. Ezekiel ministered to all 12 tribes, and his purpose was twofold, to reveal to them the depths of their sinfulness that brought judgment and exile upon them, and then to encourage and strengthen their faith of a promised restoration that God would always maintain a remnant among the peoples, no matter how far he'd scattered uh, the Jews. And God is always faithful to his promises. So welcome. If you guys are new, there's, uh, but there were some outlines on the back. I don't know what happened to them, but okay, Gary will make some more. But anyway, so um, let's see. Chapter one of Ezekiel begins with a vision. And let's turn there to chapter one of the book. This vision is a vision of the Lord's glory. And it governed all of the life of Ezekiel, all of his ministry life. And we made the point last week that before we can begin to really talk about God, who Christ is in our lives, we have to really fully understand that. That's why this church emphasizes so strongly the need to know your scriptures, to be Bereans and check things out. To, and there's so many opportunities available in this church for us to come and take in the word of God. It's not a Sunday morning gathering only. It's all throughout the week in different ways. And we've got very qualified people, Travis and Josh and others, who are coming in trying to help us to really dig into the scriptures and get a full orb picture of the God that we worship. And once we have that vision and we understand who he is, we're much better equipped to go out and then talk to our neighbors and our friends about it. We were in a menciology class last Saturday. And for an hour and a half, we're hammering out minute details, some dipped into biology, some dipped into other things, talking about the person of God and what he is like. And the overall impression, as I talked to two or three guys after that, was this. I leave with God bigger and me smaller. I leave with an understanding of the greatness of God. And that is exactly what we want to accomplish as we, we look at the scripture, to understand the greatness of our God. And then we can talk to other people and we're not intimidated to do so. So this vision of Ezekiel comes to him and it never leaves him. We see it again brought up in chapter 10. We see it again brought up in chapter 40. It's a vision that's repeated over and over again. And it's a glimpse of the glory of God once again saying, I am the one doing these things. I am in charge of all this. This is all my doing. And uh, that is hard for some people to take because there's a lot of grief stored up in these chapters. But there's also a lot of blessing for those who want to follow God. Um, there's much in, in the book of Ezekiel too, just my last comments here, that gives us some consternation about interpreting it. 
There are large schools of thought in the evangelical world, and I use that word evangelical in what I believe is the proper way, that do not believe in a literal millennial kingdom. They do not believe in a, a literal reign of Christ upon David's throne for a thousand years. And, and um, they challenge the interpretation of this. But what I found as we went out with, our, with a bunch of guys that were Presbyterian in the background who are preterists, who don't believe in a literal millennium, they don't believe that the book of Revelation is predictive, they believe that all the things that are in it have been fulfilled at some time, what I found is that they have no hope for the future. They don't have that bright hope. Every day I get up and I read some crazy thing that Donald Trump is doing or, or something that North Korea is threatening to immolate us or, or something like that. And I just look up and I say, I'm so glad that you're in charge of this, that none of that can happen. Nobody can push a button without your permission. And not only that, but you're coming back and you're going to reign and straighten this mess out. Amen. And it just gives me a standing hope. And tonight, one of the things that I want to um, help us to do and understand is why we don't change our hermeneutic when we come to the book of Ezekiel, our means of interpreting the scripture. Why we don't change it when we come to the book of Daniel. Why we don't change it when we come to the book of Revelation. We have a literal hermeneutic that goes through and says the literal sense of this is this, and we're sticking to that. As hard sometimes as that might be, because when you look at this vision we're going to read in a minute and you go, that's a cherub. Looks like a giant gyroscope with eyes, you know? It just doesn't, doesn't click with me. Well, there's reasons for that. But let's read a, a part of this vision in chapter 1, because this sets the tone for the whole scripture. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. Now, it came about in the 13th year on the fifth day of the fourth month. Ezekiel loved to tell you exactly what he's writing about. It's the most chronological of books in the Old Testament, and you never have any doubt of when things took place. You can go back and, into history and find out exactly when he's talking about and when this took place. And I have a whole bunch of notes from a whole different com bunch of commentators that give exact dates. But if I say to you 586 B.C., you look at me and you go, so what? You know, that doesn't mean a thing to you and I because we weren't there and we can't count, count that far back. At least I can't. So dates don't mean much to me. History was the most boring subject in high school for me because my teacher just hammered into us dates. And the only one I came out of was the date of the Magna Carta signing. Big deal. You know, <laughs> anyway, that's my view of it. If anybody's a history professor here, I'm sorry. But history is really fascinating so, if you begin to put it together. But Ezekiel tells us exactly when these things are taking place. I was there by the river Chebar among the exiles. He's in Babylon. He's 880 miles away. He's gone with a second group of exiles. He's in that place and God has given him a vision of what is taking place in Jerusalem that far away. As I said, it took six months for Nebuchadnezzar to find out that Jerusalem had finally fallen. And, uh, and Ezekiel knows it way before that, and he's prophesying about it. I saw visions of God on the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile. 
the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Chebar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. And I looked, and behold, a storm wind was coming out of the north. We talked about the fact that God's throne is often depicted as being in the north, in the far reaches of the north, among the living stones of fire, and, and so forth. Well, it's also true that three times in the scriptures, judgment comes into Israel from the north from the Babylonians and, and who dwell in the north and so forth. So judgment is coming, and that's a picture of that, but it's God's throne It's behind the judgment. It's God who's picked up Nebuchadnezzar and says that he is my servant. He is doing exactly what I want him to do. Jeremiah talks about that. And he says, um, a great cloud of fire flashing forth continually and bright light around it. And in the midst, something like a glowing metal in the midst of the, of the fire. This is an analogy. It's like, it's like, it's like, which means it isn't that. I, I dare you to go and, and uh, take a helicopter down into South America and, and fly the helicopter and land it by, on a river in amongst a tribe that have never seen a white man. They've never seen any kind of mechanized vehicle before. Do that and let them see you come in, get out, walk around doing everything else, then fly away and ask them to describe what they saw. They're going to have to liken it to something they know. But it's not like anything that they know. None of the birds make that noise or smell that bad, you know, and uh, those kinds of things. And there's, there's a lot that they couldn't tell you what it is. Ezekiel's trying to use terms of describing something that, from which he's familiar, describing something that he cannot describe because it is so unfamiliar to him. And the message we have to get from that is this, is we have a vision of God other than him coming in the form of a man in the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot conceive of what he is like. He is totally other than we are. He is spirit. And whenever he manifests himself in any form, even in the, as, as Jesus Christ, the son of God, he does so to accommodate us in some way that we might begin to grasp a little bit of who he is and what he is like. And so Ezekiel's trying to describe the glory of God as he sees it here. Within it there were figures, verse 5, resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance, and they had human form, each of them four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's foot, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another, and their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. That is a conveyance we just have trouble understanding. We see a face going in all four directions of the compass, and when this being traveled, it moves straight forward, and it's a vision of, of God's purposeful movement. He's shifting about and so forth. He's purposely going forward. And each one of the faces represents one of the major creatures of the animal kingdom and the highest being man. As best we can tell, that's what's being symbolized here. And, uh, and it's a strange thing. And we get this idea that all of these creatures, I'm going to read the rest of the vision because of time. But the picture there is these creatures holding up a throne. And on that throne sits one, what does he say? Like the Son of Man. 
it's not Jesus in the human form that we become familiar with him, you know, from the descriptions we have in, in scripture, but it's like that because it's a glorified Christ. It's him and his glory. And the light around him is so great, it probably is very difficult for a human being to fully apprehend what he looks like. And he's, you know, as John saw him in a glorified vision in the book of Revelation, John didn't recognize him. He wasn't the Christ who walked with him there in Galilee and so forth. He's a glorified Christ. And John was fearful and fell down on his face before him because his glory showed forth. And John says he had hair like wool, white like wool. Well, Jesus was, you know, 33, 34 when he died and so forth. His hair wasn't white and, and so forth. And he had feet that were burnished bronze and all that's symbolic, but it means it's a glorified Christ, recognizable is Christ but not him C.S. Lewis talks about you and I when we're in glory he says that we're going to have such an appearance that if we saw any one of us fully glorified as God intends it in our human form today we would be tent we would be tempted to bow down and worship because our glorified character is going to be us in essence but it's going to be changed also and we're going to be glorified. We're not going to be Flabby Lee walking around, you know, trying to get his belt to hold his what used to be his chest up. You know, we're not going to see that. We're going to see a glorified person, and the physical appearance of it is not the important part of it at all. And so, you know, this vision that he has here is of a glorified Christ held up by those cherubim. His throne is held up by that. They're servants of his doing his bidding and it's his glory that's coming in judgment to judge this nation that has strayed from him so far and so this initial vision I, I wish I had time to read it but I've got too many things to say here it establishes for us like I said that God is utterly unlike us he is different than we are and he it shows that if we see him in his holiness he is like but not like he is recognizable as Christ, but he is not the Christ that walked on the earth in the same form and way. It can be shown to represent God's omnipotence. This movement of these creatures shows that he knows all things. He knows all that's going on. As we see this vision, we find him knowing what's going on in the secret places in the temple. You know, and Ezekiel has to dig through the wall and go in there and, and discover those things. We see his, or, his, or his, did I say omnipotence? That's his omniscience. We see his omnipotence. There's a power here that cannot be denied. There's no first force in creation, whether in the seen realm or the unseen realm, that can vie with the power of God, that can withhold and, and stop something that God initiates. And that's what we see here. It doesn't matter what takes place. God has initiated judgment. It's going to happen to its fullest. And we see his omnipresence. Uh, this creature is described with these wheels that are full of eyes. And those symbolize the fact that God is aware of absolutely everything that takes place on the earth. And fourthly, um, it demonstrates that, or thirdly, it demonstrates that it's God who's will is being done. It's God behind these instruments. And fourthly, this vision refers to 
um, is par and partial repetition is a momentous char change. Every time one of these visions is reiterated, we see a d clear division in the book. If you read the book on your own, every time you see a vision, God's initiating a new section of the book and look carefully at what changes and what direction he's going. So any questions or thoughts on that? Something you want to comment on or bring up? I know it's hard to sit in front of a 50 caliber air-cooled tongue, but you know, <laughs> feel, feel free to raise your hand and talk if you, if you have a question or a comment, because uh, I know some of you read this. But this vision empowered Ezekiel all the way through his ministry. 22 years of what the Lord himself told him was going to be a fruitless ministry, ministering to people who would not hear, would not listen, and one that was going to entail great suffering for him personally. There was a stretch there, if you can imagine doing it, laying on your side for over a year to demonstrate the days of, of months that were going to be against this nation of, of Israel. And then on the other side for, for 40 uh, days to demonstrate that, that he was, his judgment against Judah. And that had to be personally painful for him to do that. There was a point in time when God isolates him. He goes into his house. He's not free to go out. He's bound with ropes and he's, he's lying in that place and he can't move and he can't go out. No commerce and no ability to carry on even the social things in his own family. That's personal suffering that he depicts. And then there's the loss of his wife in chapter 25. The delight of his eyes taken away from him at a blow. And we're going to look at that tonight as to why God did that. So. Ministry is not always easy um, when you guys have a moment. In fact, here's something you might try. I heard this from somebody else, but it's not original with me. When you're tempted, a temptation comes over you. There's two things you should do. Flee it. But the second thing is pray for your pastor. Because every time that temptation comes, if Satan knows that by tempting you, you're going to pray for your pastor, he'll quit tempting you. <laughs> There's a pragmatic good to that. You know? But we need to really pray for Travis. He stands in a lonely spot. He carries a weight that none of us really know unless we've been in his position. And I've only been peripherally in his position as a pastor. I've never been in his exact position. He carries a lot of weight. And he's trying to carry it, not just for this church, but into the community to establish a place where the word of God is truly honored. And it's a lonely place and it's a painful place. And it costs a lot. You know, it costs a lot in terms of time with your family. It costs a lot in other ways. It costs a lot in what is being spoken of you about in the community and so forth. And so it's a... It, it just goes as part and parcel with being called of God and used mightily of him, but it's personally painful. Okay, um, let's move on to chapter two. Uh, let's see. Ed, have you got chapter two there in Ezekiel? If you don't, I'll get somebody else. Can you read in a loud voice the first 11 verses? Stand up if you would. I'm going to really embarrass you. This is Ed, by the way. <laughs> and he said, it's uh, ESV version. That's okay. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. 
and as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I sent you to the people of Israel, to the nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I sent them, I sent you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord God. And whether they hear you or refuse to hear, or they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briar and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and be spread, and he spread it before me, and it was written on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamination and mourning and woe. Okay, lamentations, yeah. Thank you, Ed. I'm sorry to embarrass you, but I'm, I'll frequently do that, so woe to you that I know your name. You know? Um, here we have a picture of him eating a scroll, and uh, why is that? What, what is symbolic there? What do you think that means? Why, why this action that God gives him here? Eating the Word of God. Okay, and what, what, what do you mean by that, Ron, eating the Word of God? I mean, I, I don't think I'd get very far if I started well, chewing um, uh, Or is it that it says that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Okay, good. I'm going to turn over to our biology guy. Gary, why do we eat food? What, what happens? And not the whole us, process. It just but. gives us energy and it gives us the nutrients we need. Yeah, it's a sustainer of our body. When we take that food into it, that food becomes us. There's an old saying by some dietitian that we are what we eat. Well, um, okay. Anyway, I won't comment on that. But um, he's taking this word of God into him, and it is becoming a part of him. It's sustaining him and so forth. And it's a bitter message. It says there that it is full of lamentations, mourning, and woe. And he is to eat this thing, but it's also going to sustain him. If we went on into chapter 3, this is Ezekiel's calling. And his calling is that you will absorb the word of God, you will give out the word of God. The word that you absorb will change you. The word of God that comes into you will make you into the prophet I need you to be. And the word of God that you give out will be my truth. It will be bitter to you, but it will also be sweet. And isn't that really true for us in, in a lot of endeavors in life? Uh, how many of you have participated in, in a high level of athletics? Anybody in here? Nobody's willing to admit that. 
when you commit to a high level of athletics, you know, I, I was at a low level of athletics. When I graduated from high school, uh, I was playing football and I was pretty good, but I was a big duck in a small pond. You know, when I went to college, I was a small duck in a big pond. And I learned what the big boys play like and how, how hard that is. But you know, when you get up and you go to double days, the first one, you are so sore from the day before, you can hardly move. And the coach says, let's do stairs, like it's going to be fun or something. <laughs> and you start running up and down stairs until you're stumbling. And, and you usually went until somebody fell, you know, because their legs are so wobbly and so weak. But you're doing it for the long-term objective. And that is, is what is going on here with Ezekiel. There's a lot of difficulty involved in that, but I'll tell you what, when your team was in better physical condition than the team you played, and the fourth quarter came around, that was sweet. Your offense is rolling right over the top of them because they hadn't done enough stairs, and they hadn't spent enough time in the weight room. And it was sweet, and you lived for that. And that's the same thing he's doing. It's a bitter message in one sense because it's a message of woe, but it's sweet to him because he's fulfilling what God has made him to do. And that scroll, that word of God is transforming him from within. And uh, God's message to our world today, just application for us, it's not an easy message. There's so much going on. We spent time the other night, uh, the elders were talking about um, the uh, statements that have come out on human sexuality, trying to rightly divide where our church ought to stand, not just where it ought to stand, we're clear about that, but how we ought to stand there. What does that mean if this scenario or that scenario comes into play in the midst of us? And, and uh, our world is rapidly moving away from any acknowledgement of God. And we will find ourselves more and more and more alone and isolated. We ought to be able to really identify with um, Ezekiel. Just to give you an example, um, Evangelism Explosion was started by James Kennedy uh, in 1962. And Kennedy said, even in his lifetime, as he led people out from his church and had other people do that, to present the gospel in their homes, and we aren't critiquing the message or the method in any way here. He said, when we first started, you would walk into a home and you can ask a person eyeball to eyeball, do you think that you're a sinner? If you were to stand before God tonight and were to ask you why I should let you into my heaven, what would you say to him? If you ask him if they were a sinner, he said, almost across the board, people say, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. He said at the end of his life, when his teams were still going out, and he was actually too old to do that, he made another statement. He said, today when we go out, if we ask that question, almost 100% of the people say, I should be in heaven because I deserve it. I'm a good person. Transformation in our society has just been so quick in that way. And Ezekiel had to be strengthened by the Lord to stand in an evil day. And we have to be strengthened by the Lord to stand in an evil day also. Otherwise, we're gonna find ourselves just closing our mouths, walking away, and uh, trying to just sort of slide through it all. But as we were talking about uh, the other night, looking at these statements on sexuality, the dividing lines are clear and clear. You aren't gonna be able to say, well, let's just agree to disagree anymore. That's, that time has gone away and it's no longer with us. 
So there's an application to this whole thing. We have to take the Word of God in. It has to be what fuels it, and it has to be what empowers our message. Thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, Chuck. Sure, I just... Um, just made me think of the, the verse of Jeremiah, you know, where it said, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name. That's, you know, that's exactly. Jeremiah, his contemporaries. So. A parallel. Yeah, exactly. Good. Um, chapters 3 through 9 contain a number of warnings against Israel, and we're not going to look at those in depth, but I do want to go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 5, if you'd join me there. Thank you, Chuck, for that. Tim, can you read verses 1 through 4 for me there in chapter 5? As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard, and take scales for weighing and divide the hair. One-third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city when the days of the siege are completed. Then you shall take one-third and strike it with the sword all around the city, and one-third you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. Okay, Ezekiel is the most visual of all the prophets. He acts things out uh, in parable form, but he acts the parables out. He, he uh, brings in so many metaphors. He does so many different things. What do you think is going on here? as he cuts his hair and, and so forth. First of all, notice the implement. What does he use? A sword. A sword. I've, I've never owned a really sharp sword, not one that would shave me, but I, I try to get my hunting knife so that it'll shave the hair on my arm. But even when I can get a little bit of hair off on my arm because somehow I did something right, I can't imagine shaving my face, let alone my whole head. And that's with a knife. I'm more talking about a nine-inch blade. How about a sword? Something that's, let's say, well, let's just make it small, but let's, let's talk about something that's 25 inches or something like that. I'm going to shave my head with this thing. <laughs> and if I did that down to Greeley Mall, what do you think people would be thinking? <laughs> They'd go, Where'd you, where'd you get that sword? <laughs> they might be thinking that. Nobody, I'll bet they'd give me a wide berth. You know, the sword's a symbol. It's a symbol of war, right? It's a symbol of the devastation that's coming from Babylon. Um, and it's the same thing that we saw as a sword moved in from Babylon into Assyria and destroyed that kingdom at an earlier time. Um, Ezekiel is going to be an agent, or Nebuchadnezzar is going to be an agent for the execution of God's wrath upon his people. There's a part of this that we need to know. Ezekiel was the son of Buzzy, and Buzzy was a priest, which means Ezekiel is a priest. Do you know anything about shaving habits of priests from the, the scriptures? They're not supposed to shave their heads, are they? They are not. They're not supposed to shave their heads at all. So here a priest is told to shave his head. What might that symbolize to us? Mourning. Mourning, very good. Or, or defilement, you know? What he is doing is he's doing something that's against his priestly vows. And what he's symbolizing here is that you thought this city where I put my name, this temple 
which had been built for my glory, that those housed my glory and that they were, they were sanctified in such a way that they would never be destroyed. As long as I stand, this city is impregnable. And he's saying, just as my priest is going to defile himself by shaving his hair, so I will defile his city. I will destroy those very things where I have put my name, where the Holy of Holies is, where my, my glory has been centered for all these years, because these mean nothing to me because you have defiled them. They are empty of any meaning to me. Your sacrifices that take place in them are empty of any meaning to me. It's a, it's a picture of defilement of the priesthood, a picture of defilement of, of Jerusalem. The hair of the mark of consecration, the shaving of all your hair is a sign of humiliation. Usually when a priest had his head shaved or something like that, it meant that he was removed from the priesthood. He was no longer going to serve uh, God in the temple. Yeah, Wes. Wasn't also the, uh, the priests at that point, they were given that instruction, and, and even these, the people at this time, they thought since the Lord was housed there, that there was protection because of that. Yes. And this was sort of a symbol to say, now that was that you don't shave your heads or anything, and that was a protection of that, that um, nobody could stand against the house of the Lord uh -huh. idea, and then yeah. once you shave your head, it's... Yeah. Sort of, uh, now, now that's not the case. Anymore. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great analogy. You should have, you want to come up here and uh, finish the rest of this lesson? Because, no, you, you're catching it. No, you, that's great. The balances, why, why does he weigh his hair in the balances and, and uh, separate it into four different parts? What, what's that all about? See, no, I was going to ask you that. Okay. The fate of the people, right? What's that? The fate of the people. Yeah, obviously we get the fate of the people. Some are going to be uh, destroyed by fire. That's a fourth part of them. Some are going to be cut up by the sword. That's a, a, a fourth part of them. And some are going to be um, uh, destroyed. Blown away by the wind. What's that? Blown away, blown away by, by the wind. That means scattered to the four ends of the earth. They're going to be blown out of that place. And all that's going to happen. So all of that... The little ones that are held back, that part of the remnant. God always is going to maintain a remnant. He's going to keep those. The balances really tell us that this is an exacting thing. God's decree against Jerusalem was not without his control, absolute control. There wasn't one person that died by famine or sword or fire or anything else in the streets of Jerusalem that God had not determined was going to die. There was not one who escaped all those things that God had not determined personally was going to do that. God's justice is never just a, a flash of fire like ours would be, where we go, kill them all and let God sort them out. You know, that doesn't happen. God says, these are, these are not, these will do this, these will do that, and it's exacting. And we see that again uh, all the way through the, in the book of Revelation, that God is very aware of all that's going on. When you get those terms where it says a third of the ocean died, a third of the, of the, of the land was destroyed or the grass and the, and the trees were destroyed. You know, those are exacting things. I say God's absolutely in control of this. It goes no further than what he's decreed, but it will always go as far as he's decreed and, and so forth. So that's that's part of it. God never leaves himself without a witness, and so he's going to preserve some. And he's done that down through the ages. He's preserved some. The troubles that are coming now, 
as we look around in the United States and we have um, that declaration, again, I hate to keep bringing that up, but we have these two declarations. There's the Denver Statement, which is human sexuality biblically stated, and then there's the, uh, no, excuse me, not, not the Denver the Statement. The Nashville Statement, which is human sexuality biblically stated. There's the Denver Statement, and ones like it that are, are human sexuality emotionally stated, you know, without much reference to the Bible other than God and Jesus' names are used in there. But, you know, those things are make it so that um, we're going to feel more and more alone. The churches that are really going to continue to preach that are going to have a more and more difficult time. And I hate to keep harping on that, but it's already happening in Canada. There are pastors today in Canada who are in jail because they preached against homosexuality, not as a subject, but just out of Genesis chapter 22 and, and things like that. All of that has gone on, or gen not Genesis 22, but Genesis. And, uh, you know, they preached about that, and those things are happening in our Western world with all our sophistication. It's called hate speech, and you can be arrested for that and thrown in jail, and, and your congregation will suffer greatly. But God will always preserve a remnant. He will always preserve his people. And so, anyway, that's just a, a lesson for us to learn there. Okay, boy, time is moving on. Let's uh, go to chapter 6 and 7 contain prophecies intended to warn Jerusalem, so we'll skip that. Let's look at chapters 8 through 11. Um, there's a major break in the book. It begins with a partial renewal of Ezekiel's vision of the glory of God. It also begins to view the flagrant idolatry, idolatry being perpetuated by the leaders within the very house of God. And it's an ap apology by God. When I say apology, I mean it in a technical sense. What's an apology theologically? Defense. A defense. He is saying, this is what's going on. And he takes Ezekiel in a vision into the temple. And Ezekiel sees the uh, open idolatry that's taking place there. We read about that last week. And what it is, is this is the core. This is the core of Israel. This is the people who are supposed to be champions of God. And they're absolutely corrupt. And the heart of the nation is absolutely rotten. And what he's giving us a picture of is it's beyond redemption. It has gone that far. This nation cannot be redeemed at this point. Um, let's look at chapter 11 to finish this off. Um, Joe, would you read uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and then 13? Sure. I'm, let me make you stand up. I made Ed stand up. Will you stand up and read loud? Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east, and behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men, and I saw among them Jazaniah, the son, the son of Azar, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, this time is not near, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, oh. O son of man. And then okay, hold on. 
I just want to point out a couple things there. Um, he's pointing out some of these leaders by name. They were known to the people who were in exile with him. They knew there were leaders in the temple, and they were absolutely coming against not just Ezekiel, because they didn't know what Ezekiel was saying, but they were coming against Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was prophesying at that time, open the gates, let Nebuchadnezzar come in and you will prosper and you'll do well. And they're saying, oh no, it's not time to do that. He says, go with him and build houses and so forth. That's not what we should do. This, these walls will never fall. And they were stirring the people and pointing them in a different direction. And they give this proverb. They say um, that we are the pot, or the city is the pot and we're the flesh. And there was this idiot idea that they had that the fire is underneath the pot. The pot will protect the flesh within from being completely burned. You know, and I'm going, that would be rather uncomfortable. I don't care how you do it. You know, but they're saying that we will not be destroyed. Yes, there will be difficulty. There will be pressure against the outside of the city, but the walls will stand and they'll protect us. That's what that's all about. Now read verse 11, Joe. This, this city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, he goes on into there and he talks about the death of Pelatiah. Pelatiah dies because he's been coming against the Lord. And the interesting thing that I found was that even though Pelatiah's grief or his, um, did I say 11? Okay, I wanted you to read 13. Yeah. Now it came about that I prophesied that Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. And I want you to notice this. This guy is guilty as all get out. He's leading the people astray. He's actually going to, with his leadership, cause great judgment, great death to come upon the people. Because Jeremiah said, open the gate. Let Babylon come in. Go with them and we will prosper. Because God's spirit intends to prosper us there while he empties out his land. That's the message of Jeremiah. But Pelatiah has been dissuading the people and saying, keep the gates locked, do not let that happen. And then he dies. As a symbol of what's gonna take place, he dies. Now, what would your reaction or my reaction be if somebody who was really just blaspheming in the Lord, you know, if um, we used to have this guy named Bernie, I forget his last name, but Bernie was on the radio in Philadelphia. And Bernie would every once in a while get all worked up because some Christian would call in, try to make a comment. He hated Christians and he would just completely tear them apart. And then he'd get on there. He says, you Christians, he says, you think you have a God that knows what's going on down here? And he, he actually cares about what's going on here. Let me show you how much he cares. He says, you just listen to me. And he says, God, if you're there, I defy you. I hate you. In fact, I'm going to challenge you. If you're there, kill me right now. I'm going to give you a minute to kill me. And he was just nasty like that. Men in a radio silence. And then he come back on and he goes, there's no God. You didn't do anything, you know? And, and uh, you know, I used to think, God, just, just once, just open it. <laughs> wouldn't that be glorious? I mean, wouldn't people know then? Bernie just choked up and went the way of the fourth. <laughs> And I, but God never did that. God was more merciful than I was. Now, if I'd have been in, in Ezekiel's place and I knew what Pelatiah was saying, I'd have had the same thought. 
But what does it say there about him? It says, then I fell on my face and I cried out to the loud voice and said, alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to complete end? He intercedes. Does that remind you of somebody in scriptures? Moses. Yeah, Moses. Get out of my way. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'll start again with you. We'll make this thing right. I would have gone, not a bad idea. Maybe Aaron can be part of it too, you know. There's a few others I like. Joshua's not a bad guy, you know. The rest of them, yeah, take them. They've been wanting to stone me for ages. And he does, and he falls on his face. He goes up for 40 days, and he fasts and prays for these people. And that's what Ezekiel does. And this is a challenge to you and I. Travis has been talking about how we love our enemies. You know, that is not natural to us at all. But to pray for those who wrongfully use you, as scripture says, that's a command. Pray for them. That ought to be the least of what we do. To those that are enemies of God, those who are our enemies, is to pray for them. That ought to be the least of it. This guy falls on his face. He's begging God. He's saying, oh, Lord, you're going you're gonna to wipe them off. You can't, you can't do that. Please don't do that. It reminds us of Paul. Paul said, I would give up my own salvation if they would come to Christ, if my nation would come to Christ. I'd give that up. That really convicted me when I read that because I don't have that kind of a heart. I need more of that kind of a heart within me. So, you know, I'm, I'm saying these things to you as though I got my act together. I don't. I'm really sitting right there beside Lori, you know, and I'm hearing the same things because it's, it's not a natural reaction, but that's really what we need to be doing in a nation that's going as fast as it is in the direction that it is. And it's an intercession. He sees judgment coming. He pleads with God all the way up to the time of the judgment. Once the judgment happens, he rises, he receives the message, and the message then becomes a message of restoration. So anyway, it's an it's a amazing thing that takes the Spirit of God fully within us. I guess I need to eat more of the scroll you know, <laughs> for me. So, All right, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip um, a number of the, the things that are here because I want to get to a couple things that we really need to look at. I, let's turn back to um, Ezekiel chapter 28, okay? Ezekiel chapter 28. This uh, passage really causes a lot of people to stumble. Ezekiel chapter 28. Um, and I want to, to read it, and then I want to... Um, well, I'm going to skip down. Let's, can I get somebody to read from 11 through 19? Um, Mike, you've got a good, strong voice. Would you stand up and read Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19? 11 through 19. Yeah. It's a long passage, but bear with them here. Okay. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, crystallite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. 
Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, and so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Though your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and this dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Thank you, Mike. Um, this passage, um, here's one of those passages that people don't like to interpret literally. They try to read into it and make all this figurative. There's figurative language in it, which makes it a little bit confusing. But as we begin to look at it, what I want to ask is, is this really a passage that's speaking about Satan? There's a parallel passage in Isaiah chapter 14, which also is, most commentators agree, speaks past the human person that's in view uh, and looks at the power behind that throne, which is satanic. Um, and there's a lot of question among those who don't like to look at these prophecies as literal, and they try to, to uh, say that this is just speaking about the king of Tyre. But if that's so, we have some problems. Now, let me set this up a little bit by telling, giving you a little bit of hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation. There's no doubt that both passages in question refer to earthly kings. Um, Isaiah 14, which I mentioned, refers to the king of Babylon. This passage in Ezekiel refers to the ruler of Tyre. And that is what we would call in hermeneutics the greater context, the, uh, that which is on the outside of it all. Both passages also include statements that would seem both inappropriate and impossible if applied to a human being only. At this point, we have to consider a basic hermeneutic principle, sometimes referred to as the, the principle of double reference. In other words, um, there's a person being spoken to or spoken about, and they are a real, literal human being, but there's another thing behind that which is symbolized by that person, okay? So simply put, a single passage applying primarily to a person or event near at hand can also have another person in mind. And there are multiple examples of this. If we look at scripture, we read in Hosea 1.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The immediate context of that passage refers to Israel, but Matthew 2.14 applies that passage to Christ. It speaks of the fact that he, as a baby, dwelt in Egypt, and out of Egypt I called my son in fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy. And so we see a, a double reference there in that one passage. Um, Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Son of God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brethren. 
you must listen to him. The immediate context refers to Joshua. It's Moses saying that one is coming right after me who is among you, who will actually do greater things than I did. Not in the miraculous sense, but in, in marshalling armies and going in and taking over the land that was promised. But in Acts 3, 22 through 23, we see that this reference is made in Peter's second sermon to Jesus Christ. You know, he is the prophet, the greater one that was pointed to really by all the prophets, but he is going to be the one that's the fulfillment of all those. Now, you and I would never get that out of there, except the scripture makes us it clear that the reference pointed to both people, both to um, Joshua and to Jesus in that last instance. And there are a lot of other examples of this double reference idea. So in Ezekiel 28, if the passage were referring exclusively to the ruler of Tyre, you'd certainly have to say that in that case, the imagery goes way too far, and there's an overstatement that is exaggeration, which leaves you in a quandary as to what's going on here. Could Ezekiel actually have had the ruler in mind when you described him as being perfect and blameless in all of his ways? Who was perfect and blameless in all of his ways? Adam and Jesus. And that's it among men. Everybody else has had the sin factor in their life, and everybody else has been a sinner before God. None of them were perfect and blameless. But could we say that Satan was perfect and blameless? Yes, he didn't, wasn't born in sin or didn't have sin when he was created. So the doctor of original sin is muddled if you consider the king of Tyre um, to be blameless from the day in which he was created. It just isn't possible for a man alone. So you have to explain somehow the hyperbole that's there, and there's nothing in the passage that gives you a clue how to do that, if it's hyperbole. David talks about the fact that he was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that his mother conceived him, as was every other man who's ever been born since Adam and Eve fell into sin. It is said to the king of Tyre in verse 15 there, that he was what? what what's verse 15 say about the, this king of Tyre that he's speaking to? You are what? Created. Now, if it is said born, we would have ruled out Satan. But Satan wasn't born. He didn't go through a process like we go through. He was created, as we learned on Saturday, on day one of creation. That's when the heavens were created, and he was part of that. But he was created, brought into being, not through a birth process. And so that's a very deliberate word there. It seems strange um, if... It says, uh, the ruler of Tyre was in where in uh, 2013? The Garden of Eden. You know, it isn't possible that the king of Tyre was in the Garden of Eden or any place like it. You know, there isn't any other place like that upon the earth. And so, but Satan was in the garden. We know that in chapter 3 of Genesis. It seems strange that the king is described as being adorned with every precious stone you know, that could be an analogy of wealth, but it really, in the language, it's not just that he had wealth around him, it's that his body was imbued with that, those stones. They were a part of his created being that made him the angel of light that he is, and, uh, and so forth. Also in verse 14, what does it call this, uh, this ruler of Tyre? 
anointed guardian of church, guardian of cherub. Yeah, they anointed our guardian cherub. It was Satan's primary responsibility to be the head angel who guarded the glory of God in the presence of God. He walked in the midst of his presence. And it's the only instance in the whole of scripture where this word cherub would be used as a reference to a human being if this is only a man that's in view here. And so, um, and at one time the king of Tyre would have been, would have had close fellowship with God for he was on the mountain of God, walking in the midst of the stones of fire and, and so forth. So what we have is a picture here that the scripture makes plain is a, a real ruler in Tyre but behind him is another one, and that's who's being addressed here. It's he who has made the ruler of Tyre, the man, proud. It is he who has caused him to exalt himself. It is he who has done these things. And we didn't read the, the whole of passage, but you know, in Isaiah 14, he, he gives those I will statements. I will you know, sit on the throne of God. I will do this, and I will do that, making himself out to be God. And so it's a literal hermeneutic is the only thing that makes sense here. If you go into some kind of shenanigans to make all this spiritualized, you're a wash or a field because you don't know how to, what that they point to. There's nothing in scripture to give us any reference to bring back to to say we understand what this passage is all about. And the Jews have fought with this for years and so have some of our, our brethren who don't like to take this passage literally because as they try to spiritualize it, what you end up with is 14 or 15 different opinions that people side up on, but none of them make as much sense as the natural sense of the passage. Is that clear what I'm getting at here? Now this is important because as we get into the later chapters uh, versus chapter 36, um, where we, we have um, Israel being saved, God's spirit coming back and, and saving a nation. A nation has been wayward, a nation has been scattered and so forth. As we see their resurrection, the resurrection of a nation that was dead in the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones in chapter 37, we see God bringing about that which is absolutely impossible. And we wanna look at those, but we have to understand that the, the means of interpreting this that makes sense is a literal interpretation. Anything else leaves us a field with a lot of opinions, but not very much um, real uh, substance to where we're standing. Does that make sense to you? Questions or comments or thoughts? Good, I'm, I'm glad that was clear. Okay, um, so I wanna leave that and just say that this is speaking of Satan. Satan is there and, and he is part of what is marshalling the forces that have come down against Israel. Although that's not what the chapter is about. Um, let's go to chapter 36. I've been doing a lot of talking and you guys are not uh, commenting much. Is it because of what I'm saying is, is uh, too rapid or is Claire there? Isabel. It's what, Claire Isabel? Absolutely. Good, good. Right. Boy, Gary, I'll pay you later. Thanks a lot. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see here. I, I need to get a woman to read. Lori, would you stand up and read chapter 36, verses 1 through 12? No, no excuse me. I'm going to stop you there. I'll give you next time. Okay. I, I'm going to read this because I want to make some comments as I go along, okay? I want you to listen to these words, and uh, then I'm going to ask you some questions about it. 
beginning in chapter 36. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has spoken against you, aha, and the everlasting heights have become our, the everlasting heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, for good reason they have made you desolate and crushed you on every side, that you would become a possession of, of the rest of the nations, and you have been taken up in the talk and whispering of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys, and to the desolate wastes and to the forsaken cities, which have become prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are round about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely in the fire of my jealousy, I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. I'm gonna stop here. The emphasis there is upon what? Geographically, There's a physical geographical description of what's going on here. You hear the land mentioned several times. You hear the uh, mention of the valleys and the ravines and the waste places and so forth. That's a physical description. Now, the reason I'm camping on that a little bit is because this is really important today. There's a whole segment of people in evangelical circles that we label as amillennialists who do not believe in a nation of Israel actually being reconstituted as the people of God through whom God will work once again, who will possess the land of their forefathers. They believe that instead of the nation of Israel in a physical context, it is the church now which is Israel that we inherit the promises made to Abraham. We live out and embody the promises of God in his covenant to the Jews. And I want to reinforce that that is, politely put, poppycock. It doesn't hold water. I want to show you why. Um, I'm going to point, get a couple guys, just raise your hand quickly and do this for me. Um, I want somebody to read Genesis 12, chapter, or chapter 12, verse 1. Gary, okay, I need somebody to read Genesis 15, 7, and 18. Tim, okay, I need somebody to read Genesis 17, 8. Gary, okay, and somebody read uh, Genesis 28, 13, and 15. Okay, great. All right, let's have uh, Genesis 12, 1. Gary? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Okay, this is the first time that God appears to Abraham. It's his commission, his commitment. Tells him, get up, go from all that you know, all that's secure, depend upon me to a land I will show you. And I could go through other passages and show you how he made that trek, and, but he hadn't arrived there yet. Finally, when he got to the land, God stopped him. Uh, Genesis 15, 17, or 7 and 18. 7, and he said... And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay. 
Again, the emphasis is upon the land. This is the second time when God renews his covenant with Abraham and he expands on it. And he basically, again, it goes back and he ties all the things that he's going to do with Abraham to a land, to a specific piece of property. And then he says, you're going to pass away and your, your, your children are going to, they didn't even have any at that point, are going to inherit this piece of property. And so the land is tied to all of the covenant that God made with Abraham. You can't take Abraham and say, well, we'll take this part, but the land really is spiritual. It's the physical land he's talking about. So 17.8, who, who's that? Tim? Yeah. Jim, no. Who is that? I got it. Okay, Gary, good. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your so sojourings. Okay. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, these are the markers. He's talking about from the river of Egypt and the other passage to the river Euphrates. He's talking about here, all the land of Canaan. Israel has never owned all of them. She's never possessed all of them. But one day she is going to possess all that, and it will be the, the physical land. Um, 28, uh, 13 through, and 13 and 15. Yeah. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Okay, there we get a foreshadowing of the scattering of Israel and then a regathering to where? To the land. Now, you know, there's a lot of things that I want to say about this, but there's something important that comes into play here. Um, right now, we have a nation of Israel. They're in the land of their forefathers, but not fully or wholly. When they first took it over, the UN gave it to them. Jerusalem was split in half. Part of that was, uh, would belong to Jordan, and the other little piece of it was Israel's. And that, as far as they were concerned, was all they were going to have. The dispute that's taking place now is over the fact that they want to go back to those original borders, which Israel won in 1967, I think it was, and pushed them out of Jerusalem. They want to go back to that place, but Israel now has that whole section there, and there's yet more to come, and the nations of the world are in an uproar about it. One of the issues we face in our, our world today is even evangelical Christians, young people, don't give a hoot about Israel. They don't care about any of that stuff that took place over there. In fact, if you pull many of them, we have a college student here, and if you pull many of her peers, Israel's the problem. If they just get out of there, the Palestinians could go back and we wouldn't have all these wars over there. And there's a great sympathy, not towards Israel, but towards the Palestinian cause. Now, I want to touch on this because here is one of the reasons we believe in a millennium. Some of the promises God made to Israel, the covenants he made to Abraham, to David, and to Moses cannot be fulfilled unless there's a literal reign of David's greater son upon the earth in some place. And Revelation talks about it, reiterates it three times. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. When God says something three times in scripture, he's trying to get our attention. It's just like when we read back in Genesis, great disputes among some evangelicals over whether those are, are six or seven literal 
24-hour days. But after day one, what, how does he conclude that? It was what? Morning and evening. Morning and evening. Day one, day two, day three, day four. He's trying to say, you dunderheads, get it. This is 24 hours. I've made time. Time is what this is all about. And it's going to happen. It's a literal time. The millennium is a literal time also. Um, if we believe in a millennium, it's important because it allows us to maintain a consistent approach to the interpretation of all of Scripture. If you take prophetic passages like Ezekiel and Revelation as non-literal, you have to change your hermeneutic approach to those passages. You have to change what you believe about how you interpret those passages. Millennialism, the belief in an actual reign of Christ for a thousand years on the throne of David from Jerusalem, fulfills all the covenant promises to Abraham, to Moses, and David in the most literal and comprehensive way. I want to read a quote by Warren Wiersbe. He says, One of the purposes of the millennial kingdom is that God might fulfill his promises to his people, promises he couldn't fulfill because of their rebellion and unbelief. In his grace and mercy, God gave Israel a wonderful land, a perfect law, and a glorious Lord. They defiled his land by their terrible crimes of idolatry. They disobeyed his law by adopting pagan practices, and they defied their Lord and tempted him by resisting his calls to repentance. But during the millennial kingdom, Israel will trust the Lord, obey his word, worship in his temple as they should, and bring delight to the Lord who will rule from David's house. But there's a further fulfillment. For the kingdom age will wrap up all the previous ages of God's revelation of himself and his purposes. The land will be like the Garden of Eden, complete with a river of life and trees of life. The promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled and his descendants will possess and enjoy their land. The law of Moses will be obeyed from the heart and the Lord will be worshiped and glorified. The Messiah that Israel rejected at his first coming will be received and honored and will reign over them. God will fulfill every kingdom promise found in the pages of the prophets. And that cannot happen in its complete form unless there is a millennium. We have to believe that. Otherwise, we're awash as to what is really going on. When we say, if we say, we the church are Israel, what do we do with the land? And all those promises that included the land. What, what, what land do we have? We don't have any. You know, it's because it's a literal land in a literal geographical place with a literal physical people, descendants of Abraham, living there in that place. And we're describing the millennial kingdom as we go through this. Question. How much of the church around the world believes in the millennium? Well, you want me to pick a number out of the air? I mean, I really don't know, but I, what I've found all throughout Europe, and what I've found in, in many churches in the West here, is that there are very few of them who believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ. Very few of them. So the, we're in the minority. Now, it doesn't mean we're wrong because we're in the minority, but it's a lonely place sometimes to be. But when we were on this trip um, to Germany, 
I had discussions with four different pastors, polite and friendly discussions, and um, you know, I asked them some of these poignant questions. How is the covenant made to David that his son would sit upon a throne physically forever fulfilled unless we have a millennium and a thousand years in which a thousand years is like a day. It's, a, it's speaking of eternity. It's a picture of that. How is that going to happen unless we have a, a literal millennium? And, and things like They could not answer those things. What I got invariably, Sherry was sitting there with me on some of those conversations, was, um, oh, I never worry about that stuff. I never read the book of Revelation. I just don't care about that stuff. And I go, you're throwing out the capstone book of the New Testament, the one that actually from which we derive almost all of our hope on a daily basis. And yet I would say a large percentage of the church, more than 50%, I don't know what percentage, believes it's an amillennial thing. And when I was in Jordan, we worked in a language school. We had, um, I forget, 27 countries represented there in the language school. And uh, they're all evangelicals. They all came into the school to learn Arabic and, and go out and minister to the Arab world. And they're going to preach a kingdom that doesn't include a millennium and a hope for Israel. And that fits in well when you're working in the, in the Muslim world because they don't want Israel to have a place. <coughs> but it doesn't fit well with what our scriptures teach. So, boy, we're, we're out of time. I, I wanted to go through chapters, I'm sorry, 37 and 38 and those things and, and show you um, the vision that God has there. But let me just give you a, a quick synopsis uh, of chapter 36. What we have in chapter 36 is the fulfillment of what Paul describes in Romans 11, 25 through 77. He says, he's talking there in... Um, 9 through 11 about God taking the natural branches which have been lopped off Israel and grafting them back into the vine again. It's all about a future for Israel. It's all about God's election and God's sovereign choice. He finishes off talking about Israel in 11, 25 through 27. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, that's now, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We live in the age and the day of the Gentiles. And there's a time coming when that age ends, but it's not the end of the world yet. God brings Israel back in and begins to work through them. And then he says, and so all Israel will be saved. This is a picture looking back at chapter 36. It's the salvation of Israel. There's no place in the New Testament or the Old Testament where the salvation, the pieces of salvation are so clearly outlined as they are in Ezekiel. And it's that passage that talks about God taking out of them a heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh and writing his law upon them. And it's a nation that suddenly <coughs> fulfills Isaiah chapter 53. They look upon him whom they have um, pierced. pierced and they weep and mourn for they realize what they have done. And the nation turns as a whole because God's in charge of salvation. 
He brings that whole people. It's a people movement like there's never been. And the whole people turn to him. And they become a testimony to all the earth. Going out and talking to them. And the people try to kill them and everything else. And they're invincible. And, and there's a lot of things that are going on there. But that's what Paul's looking at. The all Israel will be saved. Just as it's written, the deliverer will come forth from Zion. He'll remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's the salvation part. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. There has to be a future for Israel for that to be fulfilled. Chapter 37, the bones come together. Son of man, can these bones live? Lord, you know. Speak to the bones. Prophesy to them. And suddenly we get this clacking and moving, and the bones are coming together, and sinew and flesh are going on them. And there they are. The dead are all there. This dead nation symbolized by the bones in that valley of vision. And, and they're there, but what? They're still not animate. They're still not alive. Can they live? You know, Lord, speak to them. And the breath comes into them. That's the salvation of God. It's pictured there in a picturesque way. Only God can completely save a whole nation and a whole group of people and commit and do what he has did. He's brought them back from the dead. Israel was dead. She was scattered. I told you last week that her, her language was dead. It had to be revived. What we hear spoken on the streets of Jerusalem today and call Hebrew was a dead language that the priests read and hoped was pronounced this way. You know, and they brought it back from the absolute dead. And the nation itself was a nation of people scattered like no people have ever been and brought back in 1948 in partial fulfillment for this. What we see now is the bones have come together. The flesh has been put on them. That's the physical part. They're in the land, not completely, but they're in the land. I don't think they'll be taken off of it again. The breath has not yet come in. They're not yet a nation of, of believers. They're not yet animated by the Spirit of God. Their eyes are still blind, but they will one day see. The end of the church age is coming. The beginning of God's reworking through the nation of Israel is coming. And the rest of the book, chapter 37 and 38, is about the enemies who tried to destroy them. And I wish I had time to go through that because I wanted to compare with Revelation 20, which is a whole different vision, a whole different battle, a whole different thing with some similarities, but they're not the same. Don't try to put them together in your, your reading as you do. And then after that happens, you know, God comes down and saves this nation. And he talks about in chapter 37, He's going to destroy the armies of the world on the hills of Jerusalem. The vision in Revelation is in the, or on the hills of, of uh, Judea. The vision in Revelation is in the city of Jerusalem. Totally different thing. On the one, we've got seven years it takes to burn all the implements of war after this battle takes place and God destroys these nations. What happens after the, the battle of Armageddon in Revelation is immediately the great white throne judgment happens and and that, or not the great white throne, the, uh, the, the um, beginning of the millennium comes, and, but God judges. The sheep and the goat are separated. The beginning of the millennium comes and so forth. And all that, it's two different visions, so don't try to confuse them. And this is exciting. It's exciting to me just to, to look at scripture. But anyway, I talked too long about uh, other things, and that's the way it is. Any last questions and things, you can read it yourself. If you want to know some good resources, I'll be glad to point you to some. Yes, Wes. Isn't there some that say that we're in that age now? 
Yeah, we're, they think we're in the millennium now. Yeah. That all this stuff has already been fulfilled and we're in that time. And the bottom line of that is that as Christ comes to reign, the world gets better and better. Well, show me where that is. Yeah, really. You know, it's, it's just not happening anywhere on the earth. It's getting worse and worse. Evil is prospering at this point. Good question. Thank you for your patience. You all stayed awake. I was proud of you all. So let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for um, Ezekiel. We have uh, skimmed the surface again. There's so much here. And you lay it out so clearly, looking at Gog and Magog. What a mystery that is. And yet um, we know that as it unfolds, those imbued with the Spirit of God will understand who they are. Those will become patently clear without any mistake to the believer who's looking. God, we just thank you for what we've had here. And I just thank you that you gave us this glimpse and how it fits into all that will take place yet to be in, in the book of Revelation, how those two coincide and, and the hope that there is for Israel and for the, the nations that will support her and the, the blessings that will accrue to them. Thank you for the, the promises that are here that are sure. You have saved a remnant. You will continue to do so. God, may your name be glorified as these things begin to unfold. Let us not despair. Though there is a Satan behind any king of Tyre that might rise, you are the ultimate power, and he is your puppet. As Martin Luther once said, the devil is, in the end, God's devil. He can't go any further than you allow him. He will accomplish his purpose, and that ultimately will be to your glory. May we all live for the same end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.